uh, as Lorenzo just said, we have, uh, this is actually our final gathering of the year, uh, which feels really cool. Um, it was so funny driving in, realizing that, like, everyone being gone is not just a collective church thing. It's our whole city. Like, I drove in. I might have been watching the World Cup game while I was driving. Um, just kind of slowly, like, looking out the corner of my eye. But I even stopped and, and got coffee. And it was, just, there's, it was just like, you know, it's already kind of a ghost town. One of these weird things that happen here being in L.A. is, like, most churches, this is, like, this is the Sunday that's packed. Like, you have all the families, everybody's doing the Christmas thing, and I'm just looking around the room right now, and it's like, this is the biggest Sunday of the year! No, not, not here. So, um, with this being our final week um, of gathering, not just for the year, but also in our Advent series, uh, today we're going to be looking at a final theme of peace, the peace of Advent. Um, so far in the series, we've looked at the hope of Advent, the love and the joy. Uh, today we're going to be considering the peace of Advent, what the authors of scriptures would have referred to as shalom. There's enough of you here that we can actually do like a little more of like a, a talk back thing today. It'll be really fun, guys. So as most of you would know, Hebrew, the, sh the word shalom is this beautiful word that speaks to completeness or wholeness, to restoration, harmony, and health. When we talk about shalom, it is just this all things being brought together, restored to fullness and wholeness. And in a world of discord, injustice, and broken relationships and wars, where we really often, I find, are okay with calling peace just like apathy. Like people just kind of apathetic of one another. We're like, oh, that's peaceful. That's not peaceful. That's, that's being apathetic. Or we call uneasy truces as like, oh, there was a time of peace. And it's like, no, they hated each other. They just, nobody wanted to pick up a sword. And we just call these duct tape solutions peace. Even just watching the World Cup game uh, over the past you know, month now, is whenever they do commercial breaks, is one of the ones you'd always get is this one on the World Cup from Qatar. And it was this, like, there's not many things that can bring the world together like soccer. For, like, just this month, everybody's, like, one. Like, it's always this big vision. It's like, this is it, Pete. This is just a distraction. We're just like, oh, yeah, China, like, all this stuff, Korea, all this stuff is going. Like, even this happened within Iran. It was like, this isn't peace. We're just all agreeing that we're going to kind of just play, you know, play a soccer game for a little bit and, you know, just call it peace. But shalom, the peace of Advent, represents something greater and deeper. I love this. Canadian pastor Darrell Johnson, he defines peace as, I love this, psychosomatic, relational, racial, economic, spiritual wholeness. He just invents this giant word. This, I mean, just feel like, what does that feel like in your body when you hear that kind of a wholeness? What does it feel like to have something like that even just be offered out as at least an idea? As Isaiah looked towards the birth of the Messiah, the birth of Jesus, he, he called him the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Shalom. Isaiah was awaiting nothing less than a wholeness that radiates from God to us and then out through us. And then in that definition from Daryl Johnson, into economic and racial disparities, into the deep fractures between friends and family and communities, even deeper still into our, our somas, the word for our, our bodies, and then psycho, our, our minds and our emotions. Like this incredible piece that moves from this large scale outward from God into the world all the way into the depths of our beings. And if we were to add one layer to this from Paul's writings in Romans chapter 8, we could even say that it's a, um, an ecological uh, wholeness that happens as well. 
It's this incredible shalom slash peace that the followers of Jesus, that what we've been saying and what for those of us gathered here today are a part of is this tradition that for 2,000 years have been saying that that kind of shalom peace has been inaugurated in the person of Jesus. That with Jesus' birth, it has begun and it will arrive in its fullness into all of creation at his return. And so the church, the people of Jesus, who we all are here gathered today, are the people who believe that that shalom stuff is already at work within our lives, already at work within the world as we open ourselves up to it. That It is a shalom that's here now, but not fully. As Jonathan Martin writes, Christians are to be people from the future. I love that line. The church is meant to be people from the future. That so as the world is headed towards that kind of shalom wholeness, we live as people who belong to that world in the midst of a world that's not all that like it. So there's a little bit of like theory of shalom, I guess you could say, theory of peace. What does this actually look like? What does it look like to be a person from the future? What does it look like to be a person of peace? What does that kind of peace look like in someone's life? I want to consider this today as we look at the Christmas story. In particular, I want to look at one character together in the story, uh, Joseph, played by Oscar Isaac in the Nativity Story movie. So if you need an imagination in your mind, you just bring Oscar Isaac to mind today. But Joseph's biggest claim to fame is who he wasn't. When we think of the Christmas story and we mention Joseph, Joseph, we say, not the real dad of Jesus. We know him for who he's not. And so Like we began the Advent series with Simeon and Anna in our first week, closing here, Joseph too is often a sidelined character in the Christmas story. Now, some of this is, as I can attest, as the birth with any baby, most of the attention tends to go to two other people rather than the dad on the the moment of the birth, rightfully so. But second, Joseph is often seen as the, the, like, he's the joke of the story. He's the gullible one who bought into this, like, virgin birth tale that Mary told him as her, like, you know, get out of infidelity free card. But Joseph, as we look into his story, thank you, Scott. He's here with me today. Some of you need whatever, whatever he's drinking in the morning. You need what Scott has. Um, Joseph, though, even though he's the joke of the story for most, as we look at his life, we find a powerful, practical, and really earthy portrait of what it looks like to receive and to experience the peace of Advent. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. That's where we're going to be today. Matthew Chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. And once you're there, if you'll join me in standing, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. As we look at Christmas, peace, and the story of Joseph. And so let's, let's pray as we uh, just open ourselves up for the Spirit to speak. Holy Spirit, thank you for this morning. Thank you for today. Uh, thank you for the joy of uh, being your people. Gather on your word. Thank you for an Argentino in. Uh, um, God, I just pray that as we, um, as we gather today, that you would speak through your word, inviting us into a deeper and more robust and resilient peace than we have at this moment. May we be open to the disruption of it and find, um, God, a life greater than the one that we currently have as we follow you into it. And we pray, amen. Matthew chapter one, beginning in verse 18. The birth of Jesus came about this way. After his mother, Mary, had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. 
So her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now, all of this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but he did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. And then we're going to jump down to chapter 2, verse 13. Just to summarize what's happening here is this is the story of King Herod who begins to hear rumors of this new king being born and these wise men come looking for the king, not you, Herod, but this other king. And so he sends them to go find the wise men come. They worship Jesus, all the gifts, frankincense and myrrh. It is all given up here. And then we find what happens in verse 13. After they were gone, being the wise men, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death so that what was spoken of by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Amen. You may be seated. So what does the life of peace, the life of shalom uh, entail? What does it have for us? New York pastor and author John Tyson identifies four dynamics of Advent peace that I just want to consider together today. Uh, First, Advent peace, shalom is disruptive. It's anti-fragile or fragile. It must be Italian. Christmas story? Y'all, what is like, who hurt you? You just were rooting for France, and now you guys are all bummed out. Um, It's anti-fragile. Third, uh, Advent peace is found in the remarkable ordinary. And fourth, it is found through costly obedience. Four little meditations as we close the year out on Advent peace. But first, Advent peace is disruptive. First, in the arrival of the birth of Jesus, what leaves King Herod feeling? We read over it, but just look down in chapter 2, verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was what? deeply disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When the new king, this prince of peace, arrives, he does not come to keep the peace, but to shake things up to make true peace. The peace of God, both now and the one to come in the future, must and does overthrow everything counter to shalom. Now, the way that it does it is completely contradictive to the way that we would think it would come in this world. It comes through a baby being born in a manger. But this is what the Bible calls justice, work being done that goes against everything that is counter to shalom. If shalom is the ideal, then injustice and disparity, brokenness of the world is the opposite of it. And justice is the work of moving situations closer to that shalom. And so to most of us in this room, yes and amen, no justice, no peace, we would all agree with this. But what I really want you to consider today is shalom, the peace of Advent, does far more than just shake up the status quo of unjust kings and rulers of this world. It does it to you and I as well. 
Consider where we find Joseph at the beginning of the passage. Our little Oscar Isaac is bright-eyed. He's in love with his fiancée, Mary. He has expectations and goals and desires for his future, likely being in some way rooted within the community, within his family, having the honor and attention of his father and the elders of the tribe, his neighbors, friends, that he would just have that. This life is what he's going for, and marriage is one step further into that. He's looking forward to a likely slow, quiet first year of marriage, settling into his life with Mary. You know, messy babies sometime in the future, to be sure. But then this news comes from Mary. And then it gets confirmed from an angel that tells him, what? Joseph, all of your expectations, all of the desires you have for your life must now be radically reorganized underneath a new reality of this child being born into your life. It is a disruption to his plans, a disruption to his marriage, to people's way of perceiving his character. It is a disruption even to where he lives. For the Prince of Peace, for Emmanuel, God with us, to be born, to enter into your life will require, it will entail some kind of disruption of peace. You see, the true peace which Jesus brings both to the world and to us is often felt like a direct assault against many of the things that we currently call peace. Whether for you that's success or security, whether that's comfort or marriage and family, just a sense of rootedness and placidness or control, maybe romance or self-expression, we've all got our things that we identify and would call peace. We all live our lives being told and believing that peace is found in some of these particular things. And yet what we find in the life of Joseph is not that many of these things are bad things, but in order for us to experience the the peace that he has for us, there must be a disruption. There must be a shaking up. One that we can either close ourselves off to or open ourselves up. As we find this true peace coming into our lives, as we hear of the arrival, the invitation of Jesus, follow me, enter into the peace that I have for you. We have two postures that we can take. The first is we can become like a little Herod, angrily and insecurely protecting our little kingdoms, our desires, our expectations for our lives. But in doing so, we cut ourselves off from the peace that we actually long for. And we cut ourselves off from not just the king that is the true king, but a king that's a better king than us. Like you're very bad at getting peace for yourself. You, you would all, we all, we don't need to, I don't need to convince you of that. You just think back over the past week. You know, on the list of my skills that I've got, if I'm writing up a resume, like inner peace, probably not one of my leading ones. We're not that good at it, but we continue to fight for it. And so we can either open ourselves up to the disruption of shalom or we can cut ourselves off from it. But like Joseph, we can open ourselves up to this shalom disruption to allow the Prince of Peace to be born in our lives and to shake things up, to allow all of our priorities to be rearranged and fall in line under him, to allow Jesus to be the king that he is, to receive and share in that Canadian wonderful catchphrase for shalom, that psychosomatic, relational, racial, economic, spiritual wholeness. If you want that, you've got current priorities, current desires, current expectations that may not even be bad, but they need to be reoriented. They need to be disrupted. They need to be shaken up. And so as we close out 2022 and we open up 23, I just want to invite you to open yourselves up to the disruption of shalom. What needs to be shaken up in the coming year for a greater experience of the peace that God has for you and through you in this world? For some of you, that may 
likely be something that the spirit is like right now, you know exactly what it is. Like Ryan's been talking and you just, oh, that's the thing. That's the thing that needs to be rearranged, dropped, set aside, let go of even for a season in order for me to find what I believe God's inviting me into. For some of you, maybe you have that prompt. For some of you, you just need to sit with that for a little bit and allow the spirit to speak. For some of you, the disruption of peace, maybe you actually just entering into becoming a follower of Jesus. For some of you that follow him, it may be following him in a particular area of your life. But all of them will require in some way a disruption to what you currently call peace. But in so doing, the offering of Jesus, the offering of the story of Joseph is to find a greater shalom, a greater peace being born into you and into your life. And then, that disruption as it shakes you up allows you to become a kind of person who's able to move into the world and shake things up as not a peacekeeper, but a peacemaker. And so the first thing about Advent peace, about shalom, is that it's disruptive. And we can either close ourselves off like Herod or open ourselves up. The second thing is that Advent peace, shalom, is anti-fragile. Anti-fragile. In the story of Joseph, we find that peace is not fragile. At first glance, though, it may seem like the Christmas story is actually really fragile because what's more fragile than a baby? You got to hold the head this way. You don't drop, you're not supposed to drop babies. They're very fragile. <laughs> that's just like, that's like a quick lesson for some of you guys that you guys need to learn this. Don't drop babies. They're very fragile. At first glance, the Christmas story is about a little baby being born to a, what would soon become a refugee family in the midst of political oppression and all this stuff going on, what's more fragile than a child in this circumstance? And yet what we find is what Nassim Nicholas Taleb coined as anti-fragile. You've heard me talk about this in our 2020 series, Take Heart. Earlier this year in our Peculiar People series, I am fascinated with the theory of anti-fragility. It is those things which are not just resilient in the sense that they're sturdy, they can kind of resist shocks and stay the same, they're, they're more than just able to like take the brunt of things against them and last. What's anti-fragile is that which grows from the pressure. So there's a whole system of like anti-fragile economics and anti-fragile like systems planning. And like those of you that do coding and stuff like that, there's anti-fragile security systems that when anybody tries like hack into it, it doesn't just withstand the hacking. It grows stronger through machine learning to like, right? Anti-fragile, you're tracking with me. Or uh, Hydra. What happens with the hydra in the story? You cut off the head, what comes back? Not one head, two heads. It doesn't just like not get its head cut off. The attack leads to it becoming a bigger uh, mess to get into. What is anti-fragile grows from pressure. It gets better with strain. It improves, it deepens from the chaos. So again, just considering the story, what we just read, you have disturbed King Herod and at each attempt to undermine Shalom, to undermine the Prince of Peace, he just leads to it blooming even more. At the beginning of the story, the wise men come to Herod and they say, where's the king? I love this because it insinuates the guy sitting on the throne is not him. Like the story opens, Herod's on the throne, the wise men come and like, so uh, we saw the star, where's the king at? Me, I'm the guy with the crown. No, 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 not you, the real one. I love this. And so what he ends up doing is he secretly sends them to spy them out. The idea being, hey, y'all go find the newborn king and tell me where he's at so I can worship him. And so they go and only for them to worship 
fall at the feet of the little baby in the manger, they offer up these gifts of frankincense, myrrh, and gold, which would likely be the financial support that Joseph would support the family with as their, their refugee travels down to Egypt. Like they pay the bill for these years in Egypt. So what Herod intended as a way to take down peace actually becomes the basis for like, not just him being worshiped, but the financial support. Even though they're not there at the nativity, that's a, that's a whole, this is a whole side thing that's not even in my notes. They don't show up till Jesus is a little bit older. They, so they weren't actually there the night of his birth like the shepherds were, um, but they're there at the nativity now because we're just kind of, you know, the nativity becomes this like amalgamation of all the different Christmas stories. But what I love about this is now anytime you see the, the wise men, the three kings there at the nativity picture, like this is, this is the sign of the anti-fragility of the Christmas story is these kings coming to like lay down their gifts even while Herod in the background is trying to figure out how to take him down. But just consider, as it continues, in one of the darkest moments of the Christmas story, Herod's attempt to kill Jesus, to put an end to this reign of peace. And the angel comes to Joseph and tells him, flee to Egypt. And so what happens? They flee to Egypt. And so it would seem like, good job, Herod. You got the Prince of Peace out of your little domain, and so now it's going to be okay. What we read at the end of the passage is, all of this was done to fulfill, out of Egypt I've called my son. So once again, Herod's doing his best to like undercut, take down, undermine peace. And at each turn, he only causes it to become more true. And so Christmas story here is a testament to a peace that improves, a peace that deepens and goes further when it's attacked. And so to bring this into your life right now, what if some of the hardest things in your life right now, while yes, do not mishear me, are an attack against your peace, were the very places where God was blooming a deeper and greater peace within you for the sake of the world. This is why those strange words of uh, the letter of James opens up with, consider it a great joy whenever you experience various trials. This only makes sense if shalom is anti-fragile. Consider it great joy whenever you face sufferings and trials. Why would I consider that a joy if, if it's just a sense of resilience that I'm trying to last long enough to get through that. The only way that we can count trials as a joy is if it leads to more joy and more peace on the other side. But how many of us can say that the present peace that we have is, is anti-fragile? That it grows as it's challenged? I'm not sure if there's anything more fragile than my peace. Like a piece that depends on my circumstances, I'm not sure if I can find something more fragile than that in my life. Just consider the past few weeks for you. Here we are in the season where you're supposed to be merry and happy and peace on earth, goodwill to men, and you are all more anxious than you are the rest of the year. You're trying to figure out travel. You're trying to figure out plans. You're trying to figure out the gifting stuff. You guys, I, I know I'm your pastor, y'all. I know you. I know what you're going through and y'all are anxious as all get out. And that's, that's part of the season. There's something to be said for that. But just consider if inner peace is the name of the game, there is nothing more fragile than your inner peace. I remember reading online this week, looking for kind of some help on how to you know, build inner peace. And one of the, um, I don't know if it was like a dumb meme thing or something, but it said, if it costs you your inner peace, it's too expensive. Mm. If it costs you your inner peace, it's too expensive. And like, you, we just see stuff like this all the time on Instagram. I, I read that and I just shake my head because I'm like, I'm so poor. 
if it's too, I can't afford anything then. If it costs me my inner peace, everything costs me my inner peace. Everything is too expensive. Like having a home, wearing clothes, like all of this is causing strife and challenge. Or you read inner peace, uh, to how to find inner peace. I think this was a medium post. The first task of finding, it was like a, like a, a medium write-up on like how to find, how to achieve inner peace. And the first thing, the first task, leave the world behind you for at least one week. What most of us call peace is actually just the afterglow of like being isolated from other people. What most of us call peace is just the like resounding like kind of effects of being away from other people and news sources and normal life. What we call peace does not exist. It's not, it's so fragile. We can't have it in our normal life. You have to leave for a week just to go find it. And then as soon as you get back, it's gone. Like just do a Google image search this week for peace. And this is what you find. Nobody is like in the middle of their life. You don't find peace and it's like the mom in the home with her kids. You don't look up peace and it's somebody like at work in the middle of a meeting. You don't find peace and it's someone sitting in traffic on the 405. It's like lotus position on the beach. It's these like out in the middle of nature. I just love like laying down and like the flowers over her face. Like that's clearly set up. Like there's no one does that. So the whole point is, what is the image that when we like Google image search, if, if you were put the word peace into an AI bot and ask it to generate a picture, you would get a picture of someone that is alone, away from their lives, away from the, the normal rhythms of existence. The peace that most of us settle for or believe is how we find it is so stinking fragile. So fragile, you can't experience it in your normal life. Which brings us to the third point. In the story of Christmas, we find the shalom arrives, peace comes in what the author and minister Frederick Buechner called the remarkable ordinary. The remarkable ordinary. As you look over the Christmas story, it's remarkable. You've got peace that comes and it's paired with miracles of ancient prophecies and virgin births and angel visitations. Is that miraculous? Yeah, that's pretty miraculous. That doesn't happen every day. And yet it's so ordinary it arrives to everyday, an everyday couple living in a backwater town. They have a plain wedding and even the birth of Jesus is given a passing mention in verse 25. So for those of us that are looking for peace, it seems to be found somewhere within this remarkable ordinary. Like even Joseph's remarkable call, angel shows up in his dreams, he's like, go to Egypt. He's like, Okay, how does he get to Egypt? He doesn't open up the door and there's like a heavenly like lift that they literally get into or just like, yeah, go to Egypt. Okay, like teleport to Egypt. What do they do? Pack the bags and they walk, they go to Egypt. They walk to Egypt. It's remarkable and it's really ordinary. And so for those of us looking for shalom today, we, sh we too should expect to find it in this remarkable ordinary, that our ordinary lives, unexamined as they often are, are the seedbed for the miraculous. I love these little details of the story because they challenge two of our prevailing assumptions today. The first is for many of us, our brainwashed materialism, that this world is a place of random chance, but not miracles. But 
if the story that's happening within Christmas is true, if we are in fact living in a world where God is at work in his creation, then what that naturally means is there are events and possibilities that are open to us beyond what we could ever imagine. And so perhaps if the Christmas story is true, then perhaps just maybe the same God who is at work then continues to be at work today, unfolding his shalom and his peace in new ways, ways that break our categories. And so what this means is reading the Christmas story is we anticipate that for the peace of God to come means that things like dreams, prophecy, healing, the remarkable are all within the realm of possibility because this is the same God at work. He's not changing his methods here. But it also means, second, and more prominent to be heard by those of us in the church, is our assumption that life with God just shouldn't be so ordinary. That if this creator God who's causing virgin births and angel visitations to be at work in our lives, then we ought to just like float from miracle to miracle, spiritual high to spiritual high. But if at Christmas we see that God is at work in his creation through the seemingly plain and ordinary of people, of birth, of refugee families, that perhaps just maybe if that same God continues to be at work today, then we ought to expect to find him in our ordinary lives. That shalom is available to us and at work in things like dishes and diapers, paying bills and sitting in your commute, spreadsheets and email. Like those are the seedbed for the miraculous just as much as virgin births. See, the Christmas story and Joseph's story invites us to see our lives as the context, as the place for the remarkable ordinary, where miracles now become expected and the ordinary is received as miraculous. And so how can we enter into this piece of the remarkable ordinary? Frederick Buechner again writes, as it seems to me, the world is a manger, the whole bloody mess of it, where God is being born again and again and again and again and again and again. You've got your mind on so many other things. You're so busy with this and that, you don't see it. You don't notice it. Jesus was born and the Prince of Peace entered into the mess of this world in a manger 2,000 years ago. And by the Spirit, Jesus continues to be born, found in the mess of our ordinary lives. But as Beekner says, we don't look for him there. And so this is why most often for those who are looking for the, like I'll believe in God or whatever, I'll, I'll do this step of faith or I'll move deeper into my relationship with God. If this remarkable or miraculous thing happens, most often they wouldn't know it if it, if it bit them because they're blind to the remarkable in their ordinary lives. Like those who don't have an appreciation for God at work in the nine to five normal rhythms of their lives, they will not find him in the miraculous because they don't have the eyes to see it. See, to find shalom in the remarkable ordinary requires noticing, looking, and paying attention. Frederick Buechner again and again. He says, listen to your life. See it for the fathomless mystery it is in the boredom and the pain of it. We might call that the ordinary, no less than the excitement and the gladness. We might call that the miraculous. Touch, taste, smell your way to the holy and hidden heart of it. Because in the last analysis, all moments are key moments and life itself is grace. Mm. As we move into Christmas, in particular, as Lowe talked about a moment ago, two weeks without gathering, I want to invite you all to touch, taste, and smell your way to God's peace over the coming weeks. To make time to stop, to notice, to pay attention to God at work with you in the flow of these next couple of Sundays.
And so to aid you in that work, the final practice for our series is up at collectivechurch.com slash current series, where we're pairing peace and worship. And so I just, here's my, my prompt for you in the coming week, is to consider how you can spend the next two Sundays entering into some remarkable ordinary time. So that might be compiling a handful of scriptures to read, maybe lighting a candle, some prayers to pray, songs to sing, what's, what's called by um, really nerdy you know, people like me, liturgy. Like writing out and putting dedicated time to how do I notice and stop and slow myself to pay attention to the fact that life is grace. And so I would just recommend, find that, do that maybe on Christmas morning or Christmas Eve with those that you're gathered with. Find some way to enter into that, even if it's something as simple as like reading, you know, the Christmas story from Matthew or Luke's gospel and then praying together. How can you stop and notice? And then on New Year's Day, we're not gonna be gathering until the eighth. And so I would just say, how can you kick off your year with just some simple reading or prayer that would, that would just set your heart to looking towards the year ahead as one of the remarkable ordinary? And so you can find all of this at our current series page. Uh, there's some guidance and details on how to build your own, or you can just steal the one that we, the, specifically for Christmas, but the Christmas one that we've been doing in my family for eight years, that, that you just feel free to steal. It's yours now. Just put your name on it, totally steal it and use it. Um, I, I think it works well. I think it's good. So uh, finally, let's, let's look at one last little piece on Advent Peace here. Advent peace is not just uh, disruptive, it's not just anti-fragile, and it's not just found in the remarkable ordinary. It is found through, it comes through costly obedience. As you and I look through the Joseph story, you may have noticed one key theme, or maybe you didn't, but I'll point it out now for you. He's silent throughout. Joseph doesn't speak one recorded word. There's no quotation of Joseph, not just here. In fact, in all, nowhere else in any of the Gospels. The vital character in the life of Jesus and nothing to be said by him. In, in Luke's gospel, remember, we get not just a song from Mary, but a song from Elizabeth, um, a word from Elizabeth, and we get a song from Zechariah. John, we get John the Baptist's dad's song, but not Joseph's. Not one recorded word, and yet his actions speak his sermon. And he sings a song for us of costly obedience. Just think through the story of what we read a moment ago. When Joseph is told to take Mary as his wife, he obeys. It says he just he gets up and he does it, even though it costs him his credibility and honor. He is still the butt of the joke 2,000 years later, and yet he stood up even though it cost him his credibility and honor. When told to name the child Jesus, he obeys, though it cost him his privilege. Commonly in his era, the naming of the son or the naming of the child, that is the father's privilege and responsibility. And so he punts, he gives it over to the angel and, and, and gives up. He, it costs him his privilege, but he gives it up gladly. We even read in verse 24 and 25 that uh, he continues to abstain from sex even after they've been married for months leading up to the birth so as to preserve any doubt of the miracle of Jesus's conception. Like his, his obe costly obedience, it cost him his sexual freedom. When told to flee to Egypt, he obeys, though it costs him comfort and safety. Joseph has so little to do, on one hand, with the unfolding of peace. He had nothing to do with Mary's pregnancy. He had nothing to do with the location of Jesus' birth and the events that led to the family's flight of Egypt. But at the same time, it's Joseph's obedience that carries him through, resulting in the arrival of this peace that came through the person of Jesus. Joseph's most significant role was his faithfulness in the obscurity. It was his 
a commitment to what he had been called to in the midst of the hiddenness of it all. His most significant role was no crowd, no platform, no song, no sermon. But when God called, when the angel spoke, it just Joseph did as he was commanded, it says over and over again. He embodies what Mary Ann Evans wrote in Middlemarch, a study on the provincial life, uh, the quote that gave the title to Terrence Malick's latest film. She wrote under the name George Eliot at the time, for the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts. And that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Joseph lived a faithfully hidden life and by it, through his commitment, through his obedience, through his faithfully giving up his privileges, giving up of his honor, giving up of his credibility, giving up of how his parents likely even saw him, his friends, his community, his tribe. He gave up all of that for the sake of what he understood to be the birthing, the arrival of peace in his life. This costly obedience of Joseph brings to us a... um, a consideration of what Charles Taylor Taylor referred to as the horizon of significance. So first, just to detail this for us, let's begin with the world's horizon of significance here behind me. The horizon of significance being the top point of the graph with time and significance. Here you go. What you're looking at right here, this is like the TikTok that came out this past week or whatever. Like what's the singular? TikTok's the app. What's the singular? Is it a talk or a tick? Just the videos, right? This is virality in a graph. Something goes viral, it's a flash in the pan. And this is what our world understands as how significant and how this works. This is what we celebrate, this is what we expect, this is what we chase after, and this is what many are destroyed by. Quick heights and a dashing fall. This is a system in which fame doesn't require commitment or skill. It is popularity apart from character. It's about just making a splash. In the words attributed to Andy Warhol, in the future, everyone will be world famous for 15 minutes. This is the significance rate that we are, this is how things work. But if our inner peace is marked by our commitment to belonging to some framework of significance and meaning for our lives, then this is a wasteland of hell of fragility that we live within. This is seen most potently in those like Kanye West, who, what, what is his life become other than the constant chasing of the other and the next high and the, the, the uh, falling rates of what's gonna get him there? So he does far more and more crazy and, and outlandish things to the point of anti-Semitism and like repeatedly, who else can be kicked off Twitter multiple times than Kanye West over the past few months? And yet what's going on there is someone who needs the significance and yet can't find a lasting one and so takes to doing it some other way. This is, uh, this is what happens with Kanye West. This is most of our city. But just consider now in the reversal, Joseph's horizon of significance behind me. Joseph's horizon of significance is a top point that went beyond his life. The significance of Joseph, just consider the fact. Here you have a guy with no recorded speech that we're talking about 2,000 years later, a level of reach and involvement and engagement and significance that he never even saw for himself. And unseen, these unseen acts that have accumulated in significance, faithfulness and obscurity and silence that have resulted in an affluence that it continues 2,000 years later. This is what we talk about when we talk about costly obedience. It is a commitment to something or someone greater, and that is the spread, the working of God's shalom within this world. You can either give yourself to the 
hellscape of our current frame, our current horizon of significance, or find an invitation to a quiet, faithfully hidden, simple life of bringing about shalom into your neighborhood, your family, your community, bringing about that peace just through the simple place of not needing the platform or the stage to do it. In the lyrics of Fleet Fox's Helplessness Blues, oh, I love this song so much. You'll see it behind me. You just listen to it. It's so good. It's, it's so good. Um, we should sing it on Sundays. It's that good. No. Um, sorry, Bryce and, and Becca. Don't. Maybe one day. Um, so this is the lyric. The opening of the song says, I was raised up believing I was somehow unique, like a snowflake, distinct among snowflakes, unique in each way you can see. And now after some thinking, I'd say I'd rather be a functioning cog in some great machinery serving something beyond me. Good. We can be a distinct snowflake of melting significance or become a part of something so much greater with a lasting significance beyond our lives. Both, both will require you laying your life down for them. Both will require obedience and the giving of your whole self. And yet, only one of them can provide peace. Thomas Merton writes, sooner or later, if we follow Christ, we have to risk everything in order to gain everything. We have to gamble on the invisible and risk all that we see and taste and feel, but we know the risk is worth it because there is nothing more insecure than this transient world. There is nothing more, more transient than the significance drop-off of this current age. And yet, sooner or later, we have to risk it all. And what I love about the story of Joseph is what I'm calling you and I to, what you and I are called to in laying down and costly obedience, we have the gift and joy of doing this on the other side of the life of Jesus and his resurrection, that I'm reading over the life of Jesus, his teachings and his ministry and his miracles, his death and resurrection, the work of the spirit, 2000 years of church history and this horizon of significance. And Joseph is on the ground floor. No, no Jesus with miracles, no Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount in diapers, faithfully lays his life down. And here we are receiving the benefits of his faithfulness 2000 years later. Come on. As we close out this series in this year, I think it's worth ending the Advent series on what we could call the breaking of Joseph's silence. You see, though Joseph is nowhere here quoted directly, we do get an allusion to one place that he does speak. And it comes at the verse 25, chapter one, verse 25 at the very end, where it says, until she gave birth to a son and he being Joseph named him Jesus. Joseph's costly obedience, all of it arrived that he was given, him, in him laying down his privileges of getting the decision and the call on naming his child, he gets the privilege of giving the Son of God his name, Jesus, which means God saves. With this lifelong wordless sermon on the disruption, the anti-fragility of shalom, with a song of Advent peace found in the remarkable ordinary, in his example of costly obedience through it all, if you, were to, you and I were to ask Joseph, why did he do it? How did he do it? What was it for? How did you enter that peace? I honestly believe that Oscar Isaac, our Joseph, would smile and tell us his adopted son's name. Jesus, God saves. Emmanuel. God with us. Why did you do it, Jesus? Why, what, what caused you to give yourself over to this? God saves. How did you do it? God is with us. He would tell us that peace is a person, that shalom, that wholeness that we talked about is a somebody. Frederick Buechner, again, because he's all I've been reading lately, 
writes, Christ, you're actually getting, I, I um, am already almost done on my sermon when everybody gets back. It might be completely rewritten, but you're going to get at least another two quotes from Frederick Buechner um, again, so come back for that. Christ, and I love, oh, because he's so good. He says this, Christ never promises peace in the sense of no more struggle. Instead, he helps us to struggle and suffer as he did in love of one another. Christ does not give us security in the sense of something in this world, some cause, some principle, some value, which is forever. Instead, he tells us there is nothing in this world that is forever. All flesh is grass. And just remember that the significance of horizon in our world. He does not promise us unlovely lives. Consider the life of Joseph. By all marks, if we were not to be reading about him 2,000 years later, what we have in this story is a young married couple undergoing political oppression who become refugees to another nation. Joseph, by all counts, dies before Jesus arrives on this, in the story in his adulthood. A short life, as, as many of it spent as a refugee in Egypt. He does not promise us unlovely lives. His own life, Joseph's life, speaks loud of how in a world where there's little love, love is always lonely. Instead of all these, the answer that he gives, I think, is himself. If we go to Jesus for anything else, he may send us away or he may not, but if we go to Jesus for himself, I believe that we go away always with this deepest of all of our hungers filled. The advent of peace is the arrival of Jesus. It's the prince of peace who disrupts. Not shalom as an as a, as a abstract idea or an attribute of God, but Jesus is the one who, when he enters into this world and into your life, will disrupt your current order of things. Not just because he enjoys it, but to give you a deeper peace than the one that you find right now. It is your faith in Jesus. Why, is, why is, is peace anti-fragile? Because the peace is founded in Jesus himself. And if anything, the cross and his resurrection tells us that every attempt against Jesus' reign as king will be overturned, even death itself. It is Jesus who's anti-fragile and us as we are in him. It's Jesus who's found in the remarkable ordinary. Consider the fact that after we read of this story, we jump 30 years until Jesus comes on the scene. Most of Jesus's life was that faithfully hidden life that, that was unseen by all. In three years that we get of his teaching and ministry, death and resurrection, Jesus, if anybody would tell us that an abiding life with God is found not in the big platform of ministry, but 30 years in the remarkable ordinary. And it's Jesus who makes our costly obedience one that we will call of little price for the sake of knowing him. This is the invitation of shalom. This is the invitation of peace. It's not a call for you to leave the, what, is, what did it say? Leave your life for a week so that you can find it. The peace of shalom, the peace, the peace of, of Christmas is not about you getting out of your life so that you can find it, but the fact that peace has entered into your life so that it may find you. Let's pray.